Welcome back to the Tycoon Podcast. Uh, Chris and Chris are with me. Hello. Howdy. And um, I guess this is the first podcast since I have revamped the whole website, aka slapped a new template on it, made the host page, that's not what I wanted, um, made the host page like we used to have, which is a crappier version of the host page, just make a new post and post it in 2015 so it wouldn't show up on the front page, uh, but it works. Um, and uh, if you want anything else on the website or otherwise, uh, tweet at me, tweet at the podcast. I'll see what I can do. I have no idea what I'm doing in the WordPress. <laughs> help, but Help us make the website better for you. Yeah. Uh, but that's it for housekeeping. There's never any housekeeping here, but uh, this time there was. Anyway, we're talking about uh, continuing through David Lynch, the 1984 film Dune, based on... Uh, the 1965 novel by Frank Herbert, also called Dune, and the first collaboration, I think, between uh, Kyle McLaughlin and David Lynch, more famously known for Twin Peaks and uh, that one role he had in Dirty Rock, I guess. Excuse you, How I <laughs> Met Your Mother, uh, Desperate Housewives. He was in Showgirls, thank you. He is really? the other half of the equation in that horrendous, terrifying pool sex scene. Thank you. He was the bad guy in the Flintstones live action movie. Thank wow. you. The mayor, the mayor of Portlandia. That's right. Uh, JFK in that new PBS miniseries. Raymond Daniel Manzarek in Not The Doors. JFK. God, I'm stupid. FDR. Yeah. Kyle McLaughlin is awesome. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, uh, Kyle McLaughlin learned the keyboard for playing Raymond Zarek. I do not know. All right. I do not. I remember reading a story about uh, Val Kilmer casting himself as Jim Morrison. <laughs> he like sent a video or audio of him singing a bunch of door songs and uh, asked Oliver Stone, being like, "All right, pick out which one's me and which one's Jim Morrison," and they were all Val Kilmer. That's a very Val Kilmer thing to do. <laughs> but anyway, we're talking about Dune. Uh, Chris, take it away. Oh boy, um, Dune. Let's see. Let's see. The opening narration of the film probably does it best, but I will try. The film is about a planet called Arrakis, aka Dune, where a element called spice is the is is manufactured. Not really manufactured, but mined. Um, spice is the most important thing in the world. It gets people high. It turns people into telepaths, and it allows people to travel through space at light by folding space so it's crazy it's big it's the spice the emperor of the known universe feels threatened by the house atreides so he coerces the house atreides into taking over manufacture of the spice on arrakis while double dealing with house harkonnen who is the enemy of house atreides who formerly was the owners of the manufacture of the spice on dune um to then get back and kill the duke of house atreides and therefore eliminating the enemy by using the enemy of the enemy to kill his enemy and there's a lot of plot in this movie <laughs> um so this is this is uh, like the first 10, 20 minutes or so, right? Yeah. <laughs> and I, uh, I got like some of this, to be honest. It's, it's so much. It's like, if you've read the book, this is like a, a summary. And if you haven't, it's just like getting thrown into a fire. <laughs> yeah. Um, it, 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 
it eventually goes on to where, you know, the Duke and his son, Paul, who is for some reason wanted dead by this giant brain monster um, who lives inside of Spice, um, wants Paul dead. Paul is played by Kyle MacLachlan. They end up on Arrakis during the whole coup and the double dealing and all the chaos. And then there's a secret army of the native Iraqians, if that's what you will call them. Um, wow, did I just uncover something there? No, because it was obvious. Iraqians, Iraqians, oh boy. Um, and then Paul becomes like superpower human man and he falls in love with Sean Young and it's got Everett McGill and Brad Dorf and Jack Nance and David Lynch and Patrick Stewart and Sting and Jurgen Perch now and I could go on for hours because this is the most insane cast. Dean Stockwell. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, and he becomes the leader of the army. And now we're in the final hour of the film. There's a lot of plot in this movie. <laughs> if anyone was able to keep up with that, congratulations. If not, you should watch the movie because they explain everything excruciatingly because of the extreme overuse of voiceover narration, um, both with an opening voiceover narration, constant um, narration, keeping you up to speed on what the plot is, as well as constant narration as to what the inner thoughts of every single character um, is having at a given moment when they're not speaking, because... When they speak, not a lot of plot happens when they speak. It's all in the visuals, but that voiceover narration, that's that's how, you, you know, the only way that people were apparently able to understand what's going on <laughs> in this movie. <laughs> Big uh, theatrical kind of Blade Runner energy, as I understand it, though I've never watched it. Yes, that is correct. So, um, <laughs> according to the legend, David, so David Lynch doesn't like to talk about Dick. Um, I'm going to open up with a quote from David, from David Lynch. Dune, I didn't have Final Cut on. It's the only film I've made where I didn't have. I didn't technically have Final Cut on The Elephant Man, but Mel Brooks gave it to me. And on Dune, the film, I started selling out, even in the script phase, knowing I didn't have Final Cut, and I sold out. So it was a slow, dying the death, and a terrible, terrible experience. I don't know how it happened. I trusted that it would work out, but it was very naive and the wrong move. In those days, the maximum length they figured would I could have is two hours and 17 minutes, and that's what the film is. So they, they wouldn't lose a screening a day. So once again, it's money talking and not for the film at all. And so it was like compacted, and it hurt it. It hurt it. There is no other version. There's more stuff, but even that is putrefied. Um, that's my David Lynch impression. Uh, <laughs> But not loud. I can I can do a better one, but I have to get loud because I learned my David Lynch impression from Gordon Cole on Twin Peaks, who, who yells everything. Um, so according to the IMDb trivia page, this last bit that I'll read is, Upon completion, the rough cut, without post-production effects, ran over four hours long. <laughs> David Lynch's intended cut, as reflected in the seventh and final draft of the script, was almost three hours long. However, Universal Pictures and the movie's financiers expected a standard two-hour cut of the movie. To reduce the runtime, 
Dino De Laurentiis, Raffaella De Laurentiis, and Lynch excised numerous scenes, filmed new scenes that simplified or concentrated plot elements, and then added voiceover narration, plus a new introduction by Virginia Madsen, which is a huge exposition dump at the beginning of the movie. So with the Blade Runner comparison... People, they didn't think that anyone would understand the movie, so they added the voiceover narration because they thought that people were way stupider than they were. With Dune, there was so much movie that this was this was a means of getting rid of a whole shitload of footage and still trying to get the plot in, which creates a supremely overstuffed two-hour film. Um, and repeated enunciations of the sleeper will awaken the sleeper must awaken the sleeper must awaken the sleeper must awaken sorry um that's the only phrase that they utter in this movie like the most and i feel really bad for david lynch he he actually was really had his heart in this he was presented with the idea of it he wasn't you know hired to come in and make dune he was approached and said, hey, would you like to make Dune? So he was like, I don't know what the fuck that is. So he went and read the book and said, yes, I want to do this. He spent three years of his life in pre-production. And you can tell when you look at the film, the amount of detail there is in the set design, the production design, the costumes, everything is very David Lynch, very, um, very much shows that someone put a lot of loving detail into it and then he finishes shooting the movie and then the studio comes in and fucks with him won't let him make the movie that he was trying to make all along and that hurt him this is in 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 a certain way this is the most important film that david lynch ever made because it taught him what it means to have final cut on a film as a director and after this he never made another film where he did not get Final Cut. That was a something that he made sure he had in his contract. I get to make my fucking movie. And so after this, we're going starting with the very next film, we're going to see a very different David Lynch. We're going to see evolution. We're going to see all kinds of really crazy and weird shit. And that's because he always gets to make the movie he wants to make and follow his ideas because all, all of it is because he didn't get that in Dune. He saw what the studio machine does to people. That's what he goes back to smaller budget. He goes back to more intimate settings. He gets to become David Lynch because of all the chaos. Um, now just imagine if, you know, he didn't direct Dune and had directed return of the Jedi instead, which was what he was approached to do when he was approached to do Dune, George Lucas took David Lynch out there and was like, hey, buddy, what do you think about making Return of the Jedi? And he's like, no, that's that's your thing, bro. That's not my thing. <laughs> Can you imagine that? Return of the Jedi, directed by David Lynch. Sweet Jesus. Um, so let's start off at the top with everybody. What did you like about this, Corey? Uh, I mean, the cast was incredible. Uh, obviously, Kyle McLaughlin was really good in, in the role that he had, uh, except for the random narrations that were inserted, obviously. 
Uh, Sting was surprisingly surprisingly great. I didn't. I forgot Sting was in this movie. I wa- I watched this movie once before in college, and I fell asleep. And I've uh, yet again fell asleep during like five minutes of the movie while watching it again. Um, but Sting was really good. I forgot Patrick Stewart was in this movie as well. Uh, and everyone like, forgets Patrick Stewart. Yeah. <laughs> The the scene when Kyle McLaughlin and Patrick Stewart fought in their weird square blocky things I don't know what's going on there but a uh, very uh, creative and inventive scene that is like so of its time because it looks so weird and like this is what the future will look like in ten thousand years obviously but uh, I, I don't know well, if we're ever gonna little get little do you know that they actually did predict the future. They predicted PlayStation 1 graphics. <laughs> Burr. Uh, but yeah, like the whole cast is great. I loved all of that. Uh, the action scenes were uh, pretty incredible. Um, I liked uh, nothing else. <laughs> <laughs> nothing else. Uh, yeah, yeah. I saw you and Dana both gave this a one and a half star on Letterbox. Yeah, I took a whole star or so off for the narration uh and unfortunately the toto soundtrack did not regain those stars the toto soundtrack it's not as amazing as queen's soundtrack to flash gordon but it's still pretty pretty good so my the positive it there's just really strong attention to detail with the set design the costume design I mean, there's like David Lynch's fingerprints are all over this, especially for like the first hour and 15 from a visual standpoint. And then you just wrap it up with like, hey, uh, we actually got to get this movie finished now um, with like just everything that happens once he once uh, Paul makes it to the Fremen. It's just like it feels like a rough draft of a movie <laughs> like it. And it's still like the plot's like so just thick and heavy and like there's so much going like they're trying to get put in there. Um, but where the first hour and 15, it's like, there's just these scenes that even though they are encompassing like dozens of pages within the, the novel Dune in a matter of a mere like seconds or minutes, um, there's still, um, you know, a lot to take away from a technical standpoint. That's really, really strong. Um, but yeah, and then it's, you know, they have to wrap it up in two hours and, and to get to that threshold, they just take all the stuff that all the all the parts of the movie that could also benefit from this like meticulous set design and the way the scenes are filmed and just kind of breeze through them um you know he has this this psychedelic trip when he drinks the um the 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 water of life um that you that barely even sticks with you because of how much else is going on um whereas i think some of the more more surreal scenes at the beginning i mean virginia madsen's floating floating head narration a david lynch trademark and hallmark and you know right away they didn't even need to say directed by david lynch they could have just had a flying head appear in space and you'd be like oh i know who this is um like that's like you know things like that i think are you know they make the best of a bad situation of needing to just like overwhelm the audience with exposition by like looking really cool um but yeah it is not a good movie um you could tell there could have been a good movie there if the studio said we'll let you do three three and a half hours it probably would have turned out into a good movie but um they just like completely kneecapped it and um taking and it's just weird because you're taking something that is 
by 84, Dune's been out for like 19 years. And I'm, I'm sure at this point it's already the best-selling sci-fi novel of all time. Like, um, it's they they theoretically would have gotten like an incredibly long leash to just do what they wanted and put it out on the screen. Um, even though this is the 80s and the two-hour movie is is almost like you know anything over two hours is like alarmingly long for people unless it's I guess an Oscar like super focused Oscar movie. Um, but I just feel like there would have been the goodwill for someone making a Dune film to do that. Um, and it's just unfortunate because you can tell if David Lynch was able to get his full vision and final cut out there, I feel like it would have been a great movie, but instead we just wind up with this like spliced together, you know, collection of really cool scenes that also just overwhelm you with what the hell is going on. Yeah, and I agree. Like the first scene when you see Virginia Madsen's floating face explaining things to you, um, I mean, I mean, I guess it's a scene, but uh, it's just Virginia Madsen expositing at your face. But uh, incredible sequence, despite that, just because uh, this, like, from the first second, you knew this was a David Lynch movie, and then it kind of like uh, goes in and out of the extreme Lynch stuff that we've seen up to this point, especially in the shorts. But, um, yeah, strange, strange final cut. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I actually, I like this movie a little bit more than, than the two of you, it sounds like, but I, I can't disagree with anything that you've said. Um, I love the set design, the production design, the costume design. I love Kyle MacLachlan. I love uh, Everett McGill. I love Patrick Stewart. I love, like, most of this cast. Max von Sydow. In here, um, David Lynch as the uh, <laughs> operator of the one spice station that gets destroyed by uh, one of the worms. I love the fact that one of the greatest, you know, metalcore bands of all time got their name from this movie from or from the book Shai Halud. That's that's reaching a bit, but <laughs> I mean, when you look at this movie, every scene looks good. You know, even the super disgusting, nasty ass Baron Harkonnen, like with all his pimples and his spittle, like it's gross, but it's purposeful and it looks incredible. Like it is the most disgusting looking thing. And it's shot in a way that maximizes that that impact. The battle scenes and in the end of the film look great. There's a ton of stuff. It looks great. It plays great. I, I, I love the action scenes. I love the political intrigue. All of it plays great. But the first hour and 15 minutes or so, it, it's kneecapped by the, the voiceover narration. If you, if you ignore the voiceover narration, you can see David Lynch's quiet moments. Like he's actually trying to show us things and have us think and into it and, and feel the film. The voiceover narration completely undercuts every shot where it happens because he's trying to show us something. And you can see Freddie Francis's cinematography really shine, but the voiceover narration just makes it pointless. The second hour of the film, the after the first hour and 15 minutes, that last hour, to me, it's a mo- it's just a giant montage. Everything happens so quickly. Um Nothing is allowed to breathe. Everything still looks great, still plays great, but it's a montage. It's just bam, 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 fight, 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 train, train, fight, fight, train, love scene, love scene, fight, train, fight. 
and then you get the the final final battle that actually lasts for a good 10 minutes or so and we were talking right before we recorded chris said that that he really liked that last battle scene and i really do too it's really good um yeah, all all this film needed was the extra time to make the last hour not feel like a montage and the extra scenes to where, you know, you would understand the plot a little bit without the, the voiceover narration. You can see everything is in this movie. Everything's there, but it's just how it's put together. It's just kind of fuck. What? What? Fuck. Um, which I think it's interesting because. We watched the theatrical cut, the, the version that was actually released with David Lynch's name on it. The extended TV cut is a whole hour longer or so, 40, 50 minutes. So I, I haven't seen that version since I was a kid. Um, my parents taped it off of like Sci-Fi Channel, and that was the version I used to watch on VHS um, when I was little. I've, I can't tell you how many times I've seen this movie when I was little. Um but I haven't rewatched it since I've been an adult because even though it's got a lot of that extra footage put back into it, they didn't go to David Lynch and and work with him on it. They just went and did it and pissed him off, so he took his name off of it. Power to him, like all the respect, like that's an extra backhand, backhanded slap. That would piss me off too. Um, but if he had gotten the chance to be involved with that longer cut and actually made it like a director's cut, we totally would have watched that, I'm sure. And for all I know, it might play better because of the extra running time. Um, I don't know if the voiceover narration is still intact in the extended cut or not. I'm not sure. makes me feel like I really should have watched it, but I, I ain't got an extra three hours on top of this two hours and 17 minutes. Um, but I really like what Lynch was going for, and I, I hate what happened to him. And you can just... You can just tell, you can see it in the film, every place where the studio kind of fucked with it. It's frustrating. Yeah, Chris, as you said, the first hour was really good, but then after, um, it was like after they got kidnapped, and then uh, they ended up in Arrakis. Basically everything after that was a bunch of montage crap, and uh, I mean, I had a lot of struggles following that just because it was so montage and like most of it was espousing at my face from their narration and stuff. Um, the sleeper has awakened. And like the big part, uh, well, I guess it's not really a big part, but like one of the parts for me is that it just sound, it just felt really weird for Colin Laughlin's character, Paul, and uh, his future love interest, who I think is just named Jessica, uh, for them to just like fall in love through Colin McLaughlin's narration next day, and then I fell in love with her. Yeah. Yeah, it just cuts to a scene of them kissing, and he's like, and we loved each other. Uh, extremely, extremely weird. Yeah, I've never I've never read the book, so I don't have any idea, like, how faithful it is or not faithful it is. But it feels like he, David Lynch really tried to get the whole dadgum thing in here in this one movie. Yeah, I was I I I've read Dune, but probably twenty years ago, I wouldn't have even been in high school when I read it. Um, so memory is is foggy, and a lot of like what I'm picking up on it is from watching the film um, and trying to tie back. But I know he, there was a definite adjustment to Baron Harkonnen's character. Uh, he's presented much more like 
I mean, we would say that Frank Herbert may have written this, may have written Baron Harkonnen is basically like a fat phobic and homophobic character. And he's like the, the main villain. So to David Lynch's credit, they, they, they definitely did not lean in, on, lean in on those and made him look much more just like an excessive grotesque hedonist, which I think overall is a better villain. You know, it's been discussed, but I, I often like it when my my villains are just villains because they don't give a shit. <laughs> like yeah, like like you are being a pretty shitty person. So what? Like you know, totally. <laughs> they totally accept it and don't care. I think is um, a very valid um, motivation, um, and I think that's the way he's presented here. Um, and obviously, the emperor um, is. I, I think David Lynch David Lynch got the dichotomy right with the way that they're presented as well like the Harkonnens are presented as you know just this rough kind of industrial sci-fi there's like you know there's clear like just massive technological edge they have but it's also just hideous and messy and they don't you know they're like kind of laughing and mad with power um whereas House Atreides is you know they're orderly they're clean they have a lot of, I guess, respect, and the there's there's a certain level of you know importance that they provide to their their women in the that society, um, and then the emperor's kind of in the middle, um, just favoring like order and balance. Um, and I think I think David Lynch got the visual aspects of those those kind of counterbalances really right in the movie. But of course, you know, we never have time to take it in because there's a voiceover narration every time you should just be looking at the scenery. So it's like, yeah, I, I'd be remiss to not bring up like still how crazy it is that David Lynch made Eraserhead and then made the elephant man. Like that alone is this incredible, like crazy leap. And then he goes on to making Dune. Um, it's still like it's baffling. Like the dude who made Safety Not Guaranteed went on to do Jurassic Park and was going to do Star Wars until he made the Book of Henry and everybody got scared. Um, so J.J. Abrams got to fuck it up. Um, I mean, that happens a lot nowadays, but that doesn't seem to have happened a lot back then. But still, just looking at those three films, his first three films, they couldn't be more different. Um, and I always wonder. I always, I had always wondered how David Lynch got got to make Dune. But then I learned the history of Dune, um, the the making of the, the the film, and it makes perfect sense. So there's a documentary that I'm not going to dive into, but there's a documentary that I think is required viewing for anyone who is a fan of film. It's called uh, Hodorowsky's Dune. Dune was originally going to be made in the 70s by director Alejandro Hodorowsky. And you watch this documentary and it's all about this film that he was going to make with Mobius, the French comic artist, as the, the designer, with H.R. Uh, Geiger as the not not I, I'm stuck on creature design because that's what he's known for. H.R. Um, Geiger did the creature design for Alien. Uh, but he was going to do create the the ships and all that stuff, mechanical design. And Hodorowski is this absolutely insane surrealist. He's he's another true surrealist, just like David Lynch. And I think that that's that's how Lynch got roped into this because Hodorowski was going to make the film and spent like five years in pre-production, and then the financing fell through. So when somebody said, "Well, I'm going to make Dune," then who do I get? Well, we should get another surrealist like Hodorowski. 
who's that? David the only other fucking one. Um, and you can see like that was a right that was a good choice to make, I think. Um, David Lynch's touches with the uh, I really like when he superimposes multiple images over each other. Um, bursts of fire like there's a there's a scene it's like a dream sequence where you see the water dropping into the pool uh beneath arrakis uh but you don't know at the time that's what that is and then it flashes to fire and then you see sting's face screaming and laughing more fire you're actually going to see like those same images in later david lynch films like he he goes to that well because this is truly his baby um makes me sad yeah it's actually really interesting you bring up the the kind of surrealist approach and you know it's clear like they it's like they wanted well it's not it's really clear they wanted best of both worlds they wanted this kind of like highbrow very sophisticated sci-fi movie with like surrealistic elements and um what have you but you know they also wanted a two-hour blockbuster you're trying to get that star wars money it's like it's yeah it this is this is like oh we're gonna do star wars but smarter for you know a smarter audience and then it just like totally collapses and that's nothing to do with david lynch like he was he knew exactly what the movie needed to be um i think and the studio just said no no it still can only be two hours like we can't we we have to we have to sell toys for this thing too you know so <laughs> yeah and the the wikipedia article says that virginia magson at least signed up for three movies and they wanted to be in a gullick star wars so i don't know what they're gonna get with three mo- oh i mean i guess this is a book series right so there's, yeah there's like there's five a, books yeah, there, yeah. the first book right yes yeah it's the whole first novel which the book length is like 400 some pages so if you're thinking like Lord of the Rings movies adapted about about 300 some pages each, um, and they cut a lot out to get to what they needed, so like four and a half hour long movies. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, yes, yeah, they're they're super the, the the yeah they're extremely long movies when you watch them in full. Um, and you know, not to talk about other movies, but this could have been you know lord of the rings just with the fact that you had this extremely talented director um you know taking the conventions of a block of what you know were a blockbuster film and the whole sci-fi film boom had only been a couple years old star wars had came out in 77 and this came out in 84 and they started it in 81 so they were still you know a lot of trying to figure out exactly what the lay of the land was, you know, but in, in a perfect world, they maybe give David Lynch two, three movies to tell the full story or, you know, break it up into two parts or just say, F it, here's a four hour movie. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, this movie at the very least, that four and a half hour runtime or two, two hour movies. Uh, and this is just one book. And they're trying to do three movies for, I guess, five books. I don't know. That like, seems like a lot. I mean, honestly, like if we get, get down to the brass tacks, I'm glad this movie failed. I really am because the movies that David Lynch goes on to make after this are some of my favorite movies of all time. And we would absolutely not have gotten that if this was a successful film. I, I we wouldn't have twin peaks and what would my life be without twin peaks? I wouldn't recommend. No, I think that's a really good point. Um, you David Lynch's career. I, Cause it, this is like a guy with a rocket strap to him. He goes from, you know, art school films to, years kind of working on a on a racer head and a racer head catches the eye of mel mel brooks 
And, you know, from there, it's basically this, where's this guy going to stop? Uh, yeah, I can't imagine uh, David Lynch being like this blockbuster film director uh, where he uh, where he goes into like this quote unquote studio system uh, and makes whatever they want to. Like he goes into a studio system and they're like, well, you're David Lynch. You make whatever you want to. I can't imagine like the, the exact opposite of that happening. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, and maybe there would have been a later film if this was a success, a later film where he just had an absolutely miserable experience and it broke him and he just kind of, you know, went and just made the movies he wanted to make without interference from a studio. But, I mean, if it was successful, he certainly would not – his next movie would certainly not have been Blue Velvet. No. Yeah. Yeah. Times were really weird in the 80s because the 80s were so much about making the money. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, we're, we're very much reliving the eighties right now in all the very bad ways. Um, but you know, who knows, maybe, you know, maybe he would have gotten carte blanche and he would have gotten to finally make Ronnie rocket, which he never got to, uh, may, maybe they would have given him like that Christopher Nolan money and say, all right, you do a big blockbuster thing for us and you can go do your whatever thing. And then we'll just back and forth it like that. Who's to say? Yeah, I mean, I think like the 80s was definitely, I mean, you had this like Lucas Spielberg, all these guys who just, and I think they're all, they all deserve to be called visionaries because they had like this totally just wild approach to filmmaking um, that had kind of just not been present in, in, especially in American film for a while. But yeah, like very quickly the studios figured out, okay. Here's how they have to be, and and credit to Spielberg. I think like he's a brilliant director for working within those confines and being good enough where he's able to make what he wa- wants to make work. But Lynch would have just never been able to do that same system. Mm. Um, it yeah, would have broken at if, some point. I wonder if David Lynch would uh, fall into a sort of like Coen Brothers style of making movies where they make these like incredible incredible movies that are uh oscar darlings the uh i mean they're also very good um but they're not like oscar baby either uh and then they make something like burn after or old brother where art thou in between those yeah burn after reading what a great movie that so many people just did not like I fucking love vernacular reading because it was so weird. It's so good. So I think we're about done here. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I just want to say, yeah, David Lynch may have been a one for them, one for me director if this was a successful one, but who knows? We we still wouldn't have gotten. We still would not have gotten Twin Peaks. I think that's the pivotal thing. Yeah. All right. Any 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 final thoughts, anybody? I think we we espouse pretty much the same thing. So. Well, we we will we will see if this is going to be the best Dune film adaptation in a couple months. <laughs> do, do not do not shit talk the evil nerve. I'm buddy. not. I'm not. I think what an I think, incredible filmmaker. I think he's you? brilliant. I think the films are going to be great. I'm just and I think they're going to do it right. I think they've they studied what went wrong here for what not to do in the new Dune. Yeah, I'm yeah. sketchy on Timothy Chalamet because I haven't seen any movie that he's in except for Lady Bird. Um, and Lady Bird. Yeah, he's in a, a small role. Yeah. Um, but Denis Villeneuve, I he has all my faith and all my money. Yep. Yeah. Uh, two things now. Denis Villeneuve, I think is Denis Villeneuve is how you say it. I'm, I took French yeah. in high school, and that, that is the amount of French I know, and I have not Villeneuve. heard his name said. Yeah. Villeneuve. 
Yeah, anyway, um, after Blade Runner, um, which of course was this other huge franchise that uh, was fucked up by the studios, and then they came in with the director's cut uh, later on to fix it, but um, after he made that movie, and it was uh, so incredible, such a success, especially compared to the first movie, like it was its own thing while being in this world and being faithful to the old movie, um, I think he'll do just fine with Dune, and I don't think he's going to uh, be faithful to this movie, so to speak, as he was with Blade Runner, but I think he knows enough about filmmaking to uh, make those homages to this movie in some way, I'm sure. Um, But in regards to final thoughts about this movie, um, the second-to-last scene, when Kyle McLaughlin and Patrick Stewart come back together, uh, just an incredible incredible emotional moment when uh, Patrick seems to be on his last legs, he's just fighting because he was told to fight, and he's like, well, Paul is dead, what am I to do now? Mm -hmm. Um, And, like, I'm I'm just gonna say again how hilarious it is that his name is Paul, but... uh, the most generic name yeah. in the sea of exotic names. Yeah, it's 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 weird, and and I mean, it's such like a just a it is a sci-fi trope, like your main in fantasy trope, like your main character has like a very like standard. Oh yeah, this is just like kind of a normal sounding name, and here's our villains with like these long, you know, all these other and all these other side characters with this kind of esoteric name, you know, yeah. Vladimir Harkonnen. Um, is like the Soviet counterpart in 1965. <laughs> oh god, the Cold War, man! Weird, weird naming conventions came out of the Cold War. But then he is Paul Atreides. Like he yeah. has this uh, very science uh, fantasy name, last name, and then he just picks Paul. up a new name, Magdeeb, and he's like, "Oh, you could be Magdeeb." Trees, but no, it's Paul Maldiv. Paul Maldiv. <laughs> Maldiv Atreides. Now that's the name. That's the name right there. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the next scene when him and Patrick Stewart come back together. Uh, incredible, incredibly emotional scene um, that uh, really showcased like the kind of emotion that David Lynch uh, was very good at from uh, mm-hmm. Elephant. Yeah, I think that's like one of the only relationships between characters in the film that strikes you in any way because um, there's just so many characters and you, they get so little time. That's one you see enough of, I think. I would agree where you're like, yeah, this these are guys like I hope they, you know, and they run when they run into each other again, you're just like, thank goodness. Yeah. Um, I can't remember the exact line, but I really like it when he's like, Paul, is that you? And he's like something like, do your eyes betray you that much? And he's like, oh, I love you. Like, I, I wish I could remember the exact line because it's really good. But yeah, that's a great scene. Well, I guess we'll go ahead and wrap it up then. Next month. We uh, we dive into Roger Ebert's most hated film of 1987, <laughs> and that is going to be uh, David Lynch's Blue Velvet. Strap on your Dennis Hopper lenses, buddy. It's going to be a wild ride. Are we all bringing uh, Paps Blue Ribbons to the uh, recording? No, no, I'll bring a Heineken. <laughs> <laughs> I completely forgot that was an argument movie, but I'm very much looking forward to rewatching this. Um, so you have this seen was, Blue Velvet? Yeah, I have seen Blue Velvet. Uh, when I uh, or my first introduction to David Lynch was ranking Blue Velvet and Mulholland Drive when I was I don't know 20 years old, when video stores still existed, and just watching those pretty much back to back. 
I don't know if it was like literally back to back or back to back nights, but uh, both of those were incredible movies and very much looking forward to Mulholland Drive and being even more confused about it, I assume. Um, <laughs> but Blue Velvet, I remember being incredible and I'm, I completely forgot that that, that uh, dichotomy between beers existed. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck that shit. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we're, we're good. I'm going to have so much fun with Blue Velvet. <laughs> yeah. Uh, all right. So. Where can I find both of you on the internet? Um, uh, you can find me on Twitter at Antonius Pius. Link is on the host page for the Taiku podcast. You can yes, find I'm me. You. What? I'm you, Chris, to the post page. I apologize for not doing it sooner. I have no idea why it didn't uh, come through my brain to do that. Disgraceful, Corey. <laughs> you can find me at the, on the Twitters at GoKufi. Uh, you can also find me on my YouTube channel, uh, Cups of Night. And that's night with a K. And uh, keeping in tune with our David Lynch theme here, it's been a while since I've made a video. I apologize. Um, I have a couple videos planned, but the video that I've been working on is a Twin Peaks parody video. So I'm almost done. I'm almost happy with uh, with how that video is turning out. So look forward to that in the near future. And you can find Chris's YouTube page at the bottom of our website YouTube link that I, uh, for that. Um, but for now, uh, we'll take a break and I will be back with Ink to talk about Wave Let's Go Surfing. We're back. Ink is joining me. Aloha. Aloha, oi. Uh, actually, I don't know uh, how to say that right. Hopefully that was right. Uh, anyway, we are here um, to talk about Wave Listen to Me. Wait, no. Wave Let's Go Surfing. I'm here to talk about Bad Show, Corey. That was completely unintentional. But every time I I think of Wave, I'm going to listen to me first. Uh, and I guess that's just what it's going to come out of my mouth first, too. It's only reasonable you think of the good anime first. I have not watched it, though. Um, so, before we begin, we have one question for you, Ink. Uh, do you hmm. have any thoughts on David Lynch's Dune? <laughs> I have not seen Dune at all. Okay. It's David gonna, Lynch or otherwise. That's going to be on the other side of this episode. Um hotly anticipated by me and the Chris's uh, for its perhaps infamous not goodness. I mean, I'm, in, I'm currently enjoying um, Twin Peaks, which I know you guys are also running through. Yep, um, we'll get there, I think, pretty soon. Excellent. Uh, yeah, I'm at the end of season two. I'm about to watch Firewalk with me tomorrow, actually, and then uh, continue on to season three. You'll have to tell Chris, because by the time this episode comes out, you'll probably finish season three. <laughs> uh, okay. I, would tr- I would trust Lynch with anything. Uh, I would trust Lynch with anything that's not Dune. Anyway, we are here to talk about the surfing anime, Wave Let's Go Surfing. Uh, let's do a quick breakdown of what the show is about. It is about uh, this kid, Misaki, 
who is Masaki, who is a no-talent kid, doesn't have many interests, as I recall from the beginning of the show. Um, he's not even interested in surfing, which is Buggy Show and Tanaka are both, Buggy's Show and Tanaka are uh, both into. Show is a uh, transfer student who they meet. Uh, First, first episode probably who knows this was a long show 12 whole episodes and it was not very good so I don't remember a lot of what was going on at the beginning <laughs> oh good uh, I'm not the only one <laughs> uh, but uh, the show showing up and um, being a very good surfer gets Masaki interested in surfing and then he begins to uh, learn how to surf and how to do all of the things relating to surfing um, so I guess let's just start there. This, uh, or the sport, the sports anime that we watch, like the, the good ones, the bad ones, they usually do a pretty good job at telling us what the sport is, what, uh, if there is any, uh, or let me step back a bit, uh, anything that I do on this show that is a sports anime, I define as something with a competition, and this surfing anime actually does have a competition of, uh... Three of them. Yeah, scoring uh, how well you do surfing stuff, but I have no idea uh, what those surfing things are and how it is scored, which is a major minus uh, on this show's part. Like I, by the end of things like Chihayafuru, uh, which is very long and very good, I know it will pretty much how to play Karuta, even if I couldn't play Karuta myself because I don't have the things memorized. Um, at the end of like the rock climbing show, I knew what they were trying to do and how they basically how they were trying to do it, uh, and I knew how they were, those were scored. Uh, even like by the end of Kangagawa Jet Girls, which was even worse than the so the rock climbing one. <laughs> yeah, uh, I knew I knew what they were trying to do. I knew how to win. Uh, in this one, I have no idea how how you win at surfing, but you can win. People won. And that's okay, because the announcers don't know either. The announcers frequently will like not even comment on what makes points. They'll just go, oh, I forgot to do commentary. That was so good. <laughs> uh, yeah, so we've not watched a truly bad sports anime in a while. I sent you a screenshot of my anime planning. Uh, rating of this, one and one-half stars uh, for, whatever, for whatever that is worth. Usually my ratings are pretty willy-nilly, but they're close to what I believe the show is, but you have similar feelings on uh, on this show as a whole? Oh, it's bad. It's just bad on every level. Like, there's no there's no one good thing about this show. Well, no, I'm sorry. There is one good thing to justify your one star. I wouldn't go as far as one and a half, but it does have a very good OP. It's stylized. The, the, the song behind it is actually pretty good, and I enjoyed watching that OP like 12 times. I did not like anything else about the show. I mean, I rarely remember openings as it is. I don't remember this one at all. It kind of reminded me of the Yuri on Ice uh, opening because of all the uh, basic colors. It was all all very stylized and clean lines with uh, all the surfboards riding out. And all the surfboards are actually animated in the opening as opposed to throughout the rest of the show where it's all 3D CGI. Yes, um, I did, I did remember, or I do remember the Greeks, uh, or perhaps not great, but pretty good animation in the opening, and then you watch the show and it's CGI while they surf. Like, very big uh, change that I was not expecting at all. Yeah, it's like a fish out of water. It's like the the uh, the main character can't even swim, but of course he loves to surf because <laughs> yeah. he wants to die? I don't know. 
He's in middle school too. The, these kids start in middle school, and they uh, I think like halfway through the show, Masaki goes to a high school somewhere else. They they are in uh, for those who know Japanese geography, they are in Owagai, uh, and I forget where he click on the knee. I don't know. It's not even like because they go through a couple different locales in the show because you know he starts off in middle school and then they're graduating to high school and they're separating based on where they want to surf, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not even like some of these sports anime are basically just advertisements for the town, like in that uh, bicycling anime that oh, we yeah. did ages uh, back. Kind, Slow Ride? Kanga Gawa Get Girl? No. Kama Kaokiri? It was something. Yeah, something like that. But like that would advertise the town and all these like landmarks and stuff like this. Here... No, there's there's very little besides oh you can find these kinds of waves here so it's like an advertisement for surfing mm-hmm. in which you see very little surfing <laughs> and everyone sucks at surfing. Uh, Minami Kamakura Girls Cycling Club. Hello, Joe. Yes. Um, but yeah, the, I mean everyone doesn't suck at surfing. They're all pretty good at surfing. But I also don't know anything about surfing still. I like I learned more from the Disney movie Johnny Tsunami. Are you familiar with this? It was like one of the Disney original movies from the 90s that went straight to TV. I am not. Okay. Uh, there was a lot of these in the 90s. I watched I think all of all of them. Uh, there's like a roller skating one too. Uh, the guy I forget the name Brink. I think is the name. Uh, Alley Cat Strike is the <laughs> the bowling one. But I liked all of those when I was when I was a kid in the 90s. But um, there was more about surfing in that one than than this surfing anime, and that was a movie who, who where the dude eventually went snowboarding. Hmm. Uh, See, now th- this show and this show was airing in the same exact season where Skate the Infinity was showing, and you do not learn a damn thing about skating in that movie either or that series either. But at least it's not centered on being uh, a a judged competition centric. It's basically just a yep. race downhill. Yep. So those who finish first and everything that happens in between can be as crazy and outlandish as it is and it won't matter but here like you said like there's no discernible way of telling who's doing better than the other and like you who learned more uh surfing stuff from disney movies i i learned what i learned from commodore 64 playing summer games as a kid (laughs) (laughs) I actually tried to boot an emulator of that today, and it just would not work. But uh, <laughs> I remember that quite fondly, as opposed to this show. Yeah, this show uh, needs some improvements. Um, yeah, the like uh, we started watching, like when we started watching the first episode, dude is in middle school. He could not swim. He decides to start surfing. It's like, what is even <laughs> happening from the very first episode? And then. Um, by the time like, I should get, note, he can dog paddle. Right. That's why they call him Corgi. Also because yeah. he had a Corgi. Also because he kind of acts like a Corgi. Yeah. Uh, but then by the time it gets to like the fifth or maybe fourth, fifth, sixth episode, uh, show just dies. Uh, and not and the it, show, a character named show. Yeah, the the buggy who is the transfer-speaking named show, he dies. Um, and the show this technically was, was dead at episode one. <laughs> This was because he went into the water when it was, like, thunderstorming, very turbulent waves, don't do this. They literally told 
uh, Masaki not to do this earlier because he was a beginner and like he just does this anyway and he dies. There, this is another weird thing about the show. It doesn't really dwell on this moment for very long. Like I mean, it does dwell on it for like half an episode, but it doesn't feel like we really get the impact that he died. Like everyone's just sitting there, very sad, obviously because they're they're male schoolers. They don't really know how to. Uh, necessarily how to comprehend this information that their close friend died. Um, but all we get is the shocks of these characters being sad, and they're like, oh, I guess I'll... I, I will continue surfing. I'll go to high school and continue surfing. I believe that's how the episode ends. And yeah, it's not even like half an episode later. It's like yeah, five minutes. <laughs> not really satisfying, and it's like, there's no reason why show had to die at all. Um, we're not really pushing any characters forward by doing this. It's just like, Masaki is sad, he gives up surfing, and he's like, well, I guess I won't give up surfing after all. Well, and that's what, that's kind of the disappointing thing, is because, you know, they could have been making inroads towards doing some character development or backstory with Sho. You know, he went out into this obviously dangerous situation, like, okay, well, what was he trying to prove, or what was he feeling? Maybe we'll find out later. And no, we don't. Yep. It just doesn't matter. Yep. We even see his brother later, uh, Sho's brother, uh, when Masaki goes to high school, and he doesn't really bring this up, besides that uh, Masaki is like, oh, that guy looks like Sho, oh, it's Sho's brother, but we don't really refer to Sho in any way, besides that he was their friend at some point, like, if you just jumped in those middle episodes, you would never guess that he's dead, probably. I mean, he's not. (laughs) (laughs) That's another reason I yelled at this fucking show. (laughs) We'll talk about that later. <laughs> the uh, further further uh, making the show even more annoying is the fact that it has a uh, one of the main characters Tanaka is a uke player and like sings most of his lines very badly and very improbably. So if you hate improv and if you hate ukulele and if you hate bad anime, like this is this is a must watch. And it won't take you long to get there. Like, uh, yeah. And this dig Tanaka, who is the, the ukulele player, he also goes to the U.S. to go to high school uh, because he wants to surf in Hawaii. So we get uh, very mediocre English uh, in terms of anime English. Oh yeah, I enjoyed. I actually enjoyed the the anime English uh, for a large portion of it, except for and it's a shame the original uh, the the site doesn't have. The uh, the old man who takes uh, the board the board former or the board shaper who takes the kids in in one of the towns mm-hmm. he speaks nothing but this horrible English uh, and it's and he's always throwing up like the surfer sign and oh, just so grating he's one of the most happy people in the show though very happy very good cook too hmm. so is Wave a uh, a foodie anime uh, no I would not call it foodie anime. They, so I have like even more uh, pretty easy terms to determine whether it's food anime or not and it's just like they have to be there enjoying the food and the food has to be um, care animated with care like it doesn't have to be well animated but you have to like tell that they went into this and it's not just like a food food like shit and that it does not pass that but the sticky shrimp man the sticky <laughs> shrimp and his uh, dried sweet potatoes yes Awfully little shriveled bag. Yeah. 
Yeah. And you know what makes this whole thing severely disappointing is the director who did this directed uh, Girls Last Tour. Can you like that show? It was fantastic. I mean, it's an adaptation of a manga, and as it turns out, this uh, the Wave uh, Yape Japan um, is a, a franchise that was uh, originally conceived of by a game company called um, uh, Mages, and they've done like Robotics Notes and Chaos Child, and mm. uh, I think Steinscape. Um, but the uh, it's just bad, it's so bad. Uh, and it's, it's it's their original thing, and the director can't help but I guess bend to whatever they wanted or whatever existed. And there's also a four-panel comic, evidently, about it, mm-hmm. and a smartphone game. Um, the 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 script writer again also has to bend to their thing. But the script writer was also on Girls Last Tour, and uh, Black Clover, and uh, yeah, yeah, it's just. Like after I finished watching the show and I hated it so much, I went to see who was involved, and I was like, "Now I hate it even more." <laughs> it's tainted my opinion of Takaharu Ozaki. <laughs> there is a wave trilogy of films that we are missing out on. See, I'm not sure it's not the same thing. I don't know if they blended all the three films into the show. Or if it was, you know, an entirely different thing. I couldn't find any information on that. Yeah, I have no idea. Like, this this thing doesn't even have a Wikipedia article, uh, which is where I usually get my information. So now I'm on the wave-anime.fandom.com website. <laughs> it, was, uh, it was animated by Asahi Production, which, like, has its fingers in everything. Uh, takes you a good day and a half to scroll down through their credits on uh, Anime News Network. And uh, 3G, the 3D CGI, which does all the water and uh, the surfing, which looks horrible, uh, is done by Creasy, which is Q-R-E-A-Z-Y. Uh, yeah, and granted, animating water's tough. It, it's super tough. But here, it just 3D CG was just a bad move. If I am reading this correctly, um, yes, I agree that 3D CG is not very, not very good. They should not have done that. Um, but if I'm reading this correctly... This says the Wave anime series is a cut down version of the movie trilogy, so like we're missing out on something from the movie. But twelve episodes is longer than a movie, right? Yeah, they they should have been able to. Like, hey, it's yeah, like you point out, longer than a movie, <laughs> longer than three movies. Yeah. But uh, well, I guess depending on how long the movies were, but. Uh, yeah, they, they should have been able to do something with more coherency, and if they had plans on going further with the series, they, there should have been more hints at character development. And yeah. Like, who's going to want to watch more after seeing these 12 episodes? Uh, us, into podcasting again? No, no this is this <laughs> is it. <laughs> uh, we still have to go to the Kangigawa Jet Girls game, right? Yeah, it's way too expensive on Steam. <laughs> Uh, yeah, but uh, I don't know what I expected from this anime. Like usually, as I uh, as we mentioned, the ones that we have watched recently are just kind of middling or okay. Like they haven't been truly bad, but this one is this one was bad. Uh, the main character uh, Masaki he doesn't really grow in any significant way because like he learns surfing. Um, and the one kind of character arc that we like big character arc that we get that I remember is, as I click through these characters, um, one of the dudes that he meets in high school, Yuta Matsukaze, 
he does this app where he shows where like what the waves are going to be like that day he kind of gives that up gives up surfing because he's kind of in a surfing slump he's not doing as well as as his buggies and he gets over that and he's like uh, i forgot why i fell in love with surfing in the first place and like that's a it's a very nice arc probably my favorite episode of the series for whatever that's worth um but besides that i don't really remember many character moments um besides the also the anime nerd just being like an animator and now uh keto yep now yeah 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 he said that that was i i I kind of loved that stupid thing because i knew at the second i saw like there was no taku uh surfer i was just like okay uh, there's gonna be like something good involving like someone taking away his board and <laughs> freaking out, um, and there was basically, <laughs> except it was like a production company announcing the end of his favorite anime, which was taking away his you know reason to live. <laughs> this dude uh, likes likes this anime a little too much. I would say this anime uh, Miru, I think, is only like five years old, um, so it's not even something that 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 old that where you like like Gundam where you fall in love with an entire franchise of it um I mean sometimes I guess yeah you you will find the shows that you really like and you fall in love with I don't know something five years old seems too new not only that like you don't structure your life around it <laughs> yeah I mean he's obviously surfing first yeah but is he <laughs> I don't know cause you know if you want to break it down he, he got the miru miru a board to do surfing with. Hmm. He didn't. He didn't learn to surf because of It's Like banana, you just keep going. Exactly. No, like, I don't know. I don't have much else to add to this. Do you? Uh, uh, the the whole reason why they they bring like I mentioned at the, the thing the show is not dead. Um, he comes back at the very end of the series. And he's evidently watched his friends perform and is very happy as he walks away. So he's just being a dick and letting everybody think he's dead. So why? We don't know. Yeah. I watched the episode over lunch today. I do not remember this. (laughs) Yeah, there's this shot of him like walking away from the the, the competition at the very end. It's like, oh, so he's alive. Okay. It may be in a bumper. Uh, I don't know. Uh, uh, the bumper was just uh, an eye catch. Mm. I'm opening up the episode right now. Like, see, it's gotcha. live. <laughs> yeah, it's it's towards the end. It's past the end of the surfing competition, and they cut to sh- like a, a kid with bright blue eyes and blonde hair under a cap, and he's walking out of the uh, the event space, and it's like that's Shell. That's got to be Shell. It's not his but, brother. Like, no, no, because his brother was surfing with him. Oh, hmm. I think I'm to that point. I have. Uh, yeah, and uh, that yeah. that just made me throw up my hands. It's like, okay, so he just wanted his friends to think he's dead, but at the same time was really happy to go cheer him on. Here's this <laughs> show-looking guy running running around. I I have no recollection of this. <laughs> I don't know how I how I would not know. He's I mean, I maybe have fever dreamed it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, when the last episode aired was the last time I watched it, and my mind quickly, in like panic <laughs> mode, started trying to erase it. And I'm like, no, no, we've got to talk about this in a couple weeks. Alug, <laughs> uh, if he's still alive, then what was he doing this whole time? Like, exactly. Why did everyone seem so sad? Because he was like, I would be relieved, personal, if my friend. Well, I, 
I think everyone thinks he's dead. I think he wanted to trick someone into thinking they were dead. So, like, maybe he was trying to avoid his brother, who was better than him, obviously, because he taught Sho how to do his things. And I don't know. Like, they don't give you enough to go on, and it's infuriating. <laughs> so he just seems like a dick. <laughs> Which, fine, if you're going to have them be a dick, I mean... Here is show. He was watching it. He ran around. I don't know where he was running around to. Uh, I there was no subtitles while he was docking, so he didn't say any, or while he was running around, so he didn't say anything. No, no, he was like all. watching him, and then he walked away as he started surfing. As Masaki's, I don't understand. So I wasn't imagining it, right? Yep, correct. Cool. So either that was show or that was show doppelganger. <laughs> yeah, and it's not like the show actually makes you the show. It makes you want to care if it is or not. Yep. It's just like a final finger in your face, like, oh, we're just throwing in this twist cuz. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, basically. I've never that that oh, I gosh. think it was the moment that I just became absolutely infuriated with the show. It's like you've already stabbed me in the heart a million times with however many uke songs. <laughs> and now this. Come on. Uh yeah. I uh I remove my one and a half. I lower the rating. <laughs> <laughs> Lowering it just it. went from bad to worse. Lowering it by a full star. <laughs> nice. Uh, I don't even remember what I gave it. <laughs> Check here. Unfortunately, this is something that I that I don't like about these rating systems. Like usually, you can't give Ooh. things zero stars because they just consider that not rated. I yeah yeah yeah. I'm with you there. Yeah, I had two stars. I don't even know what gave me made me give it two stars. <laughs> maybe I thought maybe giving it one was too mean, but now that I found out you can give it a half, I'm giving it a half. Because <laughs> fuck this show. Uh, what's the last fuck this show moment we had? Oh, it's the one where we had the running counter with Pats. Yeah, I think that was the, oh, the rest of the want to be one, the strongest. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Is this better or worse than that? <clears throat> Slight. Oh, no, you know what? I'm going to say it's just as bad because the uke is equivalent to all that, uh, uh <laughs> Gratuitous screaming, yeah. <laughs> uh, it's at gosh. least made endearing by the opening animation and the uh, the bad English. Uh, all right, so thanks. which is at least varied, uh, you know, as opposed to a lot of other series. There's there's some actual long sentence speaking, and it was kind of impressive. True. I mean, they were uh, or he was in Hawaii for months. Hopefully, you would learn sentences, full sentences. Mm. But, you know, you don't have to make that production choice of saying, oh, hey, you know, we're going to have everyone actually speak English instead of just, you know, translating it. Yeah, yeah. All right. So, Mink, do you have anything else before we close out this episode? Don't watch the show. Watch the OP on YouTube, and, uh, yeah, that's it. <laughs> yep, basically. Uh, I agree. All right. So, uh, Ink, where can we find you on the internet? find me over at anagamers.com I'm uh, currently producing the Misery Box of Misery column where people uh, are mailed as voted on by the Anagamers patrons uh, three random discs from blind boxes and they have to watch and review those discs without context of the rest of the shows um, and uh, I also do this co-host this uh, uh, little podcast called Otaku No Radio uh, with uh, my awesome co-host Jared Nelson and uh, I think we've got we just did Kimigoro Orange Road and we're just about to put up uh, Nozaki-kun, Monthly Girls Nozaki-kun oh yeah, I saw and, you watching that, great show 
oh yeah, it was a lot of fun. It was a really surprising how much I liked that. Uh, and we're just about to record a show for Millennium Actress and Yamato 2199. Great movie. Um, you, do you read Film Crit Hulk? Do I read what? Film Crit Hulk? No. You just released a post about uh, Millennium Actress, Mike and Chris do. I tend to like his reading, or his his reading. Um, I have no idea how he reads. Uh, I tend to like his writing. <laughs> uh, he provides uh, good insights, story telling. Is this a Twitter account or a blog? Or? Yeah, Twitter account. Um, nice. He has a Patreon now, which I don't think you have to be subscribed to read his things. How about you, Corey? Where are you besides uh, here? Oh, right. I have to close out the episode, too. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm on Twitter at K. And um, this podcast is on Twitter at Taiku Podcast. It's T A I I K U, and you can find all of our episodes over at TaikuPodcast.com, um, where I also do another podcast called Mugging Your Ears with uh, our friends Helen and April. And thank you, Inc., coming on uh, for living up to your title of Dag Sports Anime Correspondent. A pleasure. Hopefully, we have uh, more this season. There's definitely more than enough fodder. Well,. You will be on soon to talk about Skate the Infinity, which is the, I would say, the good kind of bag, even though it's not really bag at all. It's just, like, It can be great. Yeah. Perhaps, perhaps. Uh, it's basically the NFL draft for the last three days. And I've thought about nothing else. <laughs> really? Thought of nothing else? Nothing else. Yeah, I watched this movie on, like, on Wednesday. See, that's pre, pre-draft, though. Pre-draft, yeah. <laughs> you guys are crazy. You can begin this movie. I guess. I didn't finish watching the movie, just so you guys know. <gasps> I still have 13 minutes left, including the credits, so maybe, like, five minutes yeah <laughs> the I sequence to... is really cool actually they have all the uh pictures of the people pop up mm-hmm. but uh yeah, i had to pause the movie because that threw me off schedule i think the last five minutes is is actually a significant amount of plot which is my gripe about the movie but <laughs> <laughs> significant amount of plot is is the catch-all for this movie yes <laughs> this has been a hobbit one hobbit two and three situation uh, yes, which is why Denis Villeneuve's films are going to be awesome because he gets two movies. Yeah, it's super. It, like there was there there was no way to tell this story in a two hour film. Like, well, we'll get into that. Yeah, we will. Let's All begin. Right. <laughs>